There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Francis Spufford returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest novel, Light Perpetual. Francis Spufford's debut novel, Golden Hill, won the Costa First Novel Award, the RSL Ondati Prize and the Desmond Elliott Prize and was shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction, the Rathbone Folio Prize, the Authors Club Best First Novel Award and the British Book Awards Debut Novel of the Year. He's also the author of five highly praised works of non-fiction. In 2007, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and currently still teaches writing at Goldsmiths College at the University of London. And today we're going to talk about Francis's new novel, which is Light Perpetual. Francis, welcome back to Little Atoms. Neil, thanks for having me again. First of all, tell us how you would describe Light Perpetual. Ooh, It's a novel about London changing over the decades as seen through the eyes of five working class South Londoners, all born around 1940. Uh, They all die in the first few pages because a a V2 falls on them in a a branch of Woolworths where their their mothers have taken them to, to buy saucepans, which is something that really happened in the Woolworths in New Cross. And that's on my way to work at Goldsmiths and I've been walking past the the plaque on the wall there and being kind of progressively more and more haunted by the thought that these dead children because there were 15 people in there who were children missed the rest of the 20th century that they they never saw the extraordinary ways in which in which London has changed and you know and stayed the same too it's definitely the same place but a place in in metamorphosis so the book is a way of you know it's not about literal dead children I some of those people are still being remembered by real live families and I wouldn't want to mess around in a sort of clever clever way with real people's real grief so they're five completely imaginary children I in fact imagined a complete London borough to go around them I sort of shoehorned it in in between Lewisham and New Cross and Catford pretty much and in the book they are able, in a sort of provisional way, to live the rest of the 20th century. And the book catches up with them every 15 years or so. It's got that in common with the BBC's Up series of, of documentaries. But it's not an accident that they all die at the beginning. It's a way of trying to put a kind of 
frame of fragility or darkness or possibly light around the rest of their experience, a way of keeping it in mind for the reader that, like all our lives, it's a bit arbitrary that this one is is happening at all. And I, and I want, so far as it's possible, for people to read it with kind of one eye on the fact that these particular people, you know, needn't have been there at all. I want life to look gratuitous in both senses, being a bit like a gift and a bit like kind of something for which there's no reason. And then as the book draws to an end and their lives draw to an end too, because they all get to live to be old in the book, it's as if the scenery becomes a bit more transparent and the strangeness of them being there at all comes back into view, I hope, if I've done it right. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is what happens towards the end. I want to sort of elaborate on this idea a bit because, well, I guess your previous novel, Golden Hill, is a rollickingly great adventure story read, but it's also full of like fun rhetorical tricks and playing around with the narrative. And this story seems, on the face of it, more straightforward beyond this concept that, as you've said, that we know from the beginning that none of these characters for want of a better word, really exist because they've died at the beginning of the book. And therefore, of course, that gives the lives of these characters this added poignancy. Yet, of course, and I'll exaggerate slightly for rhetorical effect, but every single novel ever written is about (laughs) characters that don't exist. So I want to talk about, here. you're also clearly having something to say about the concept of fiction itself. Well, yeah, I probably am in some ways just finding a way to underline or double underline something that's part of the, the artifice of fiction anyway. I wanted the lives to seem as real as possible. So it's not like the kind of artifice you get in one of those books where the author is constantly breaking the fourth wall and reminding you that it's only a novel you're reading. I wanted there to be an actual kind of tension between how kind of solid and well-specified and, for want of a better word, ordinary, I'd like to come back to that word in a minute, just kind of dependably, recognisably not out of the ordinary these lives are, And at the same time, it being true that there is a kind of flimsiness or strangeness about them. Not because I want these to seem like specially flimsy or strange people, but because there is that quality really there, looking at human life from a certain not taking it for granted kind of angle. It's often associated, you know, when writers do it with people who have a really pronounced sort of fear of death. Philip Larkin, for example, one of the great masterful death fearers, talks about the the million petaled bloom of being here. And that's because he was constantly comparing any experience, even a kind of rainy Tuesday, to the kind of vast void of nothingness before a human life and the vast void of nothingness after it, as as he saw it. A kind of a picture made made a bit fragile by terror in some ways there, which is not quite what I want, but I do want the sense that that there's something worth paying attention to about experience in itself being not something to take for granted. And and allied to that, it's a novel about time and about how we live in time. And time is, is a mysterious medium to exist in. It's extraordinarily hard to describe or to look at in itself. Particle physicists do it 
but it's not clear to me how you can transfer the insights that come from a brief history of time, for example, into into helping make sense of the 80 or so, if we're lucky, years that we get we get here. More ordinary of the experience of time, that word again, is St. Augustine saying, I know exactly what time is until someone asks me. Well, this is exactly where I wanted to go next, actually, yeah. because, I mean, you do set out time in the first chapter of this book in a way that, you know, feels like it could be written by a physicist. It's quite cold and remorseless in time split down into infinitesimal segments and sort of marching remorselessly on regardless of us. But then the book itself, you've just raised St. Augustine, and I can sort of feel your your Christianity informing the rest of the book once we actually get into the characters, because the book itself is incredibly compassionate, and it's about second chances, and it's about, you know, forgiveness. And so, I mean, well, that's not really a question, I guess. No, no, that's just true. I'm going to say, my answer to that is uh, yes. At least I hope it's true. But hang on, go back a bit, because there isn't a contradiction between the kind of coldness, the sort of physical sciences coldness of the opening and the rest, because it's the combination of things which are kind of the truth of our of our situation. Warheads are very clinical things. They go off when they go off, irrespective of who happens to be standing next to them. And one of the things I found fascinating about describing an explosion is that explosions happen in real time, but they happen phenomenally quickly compared to the human perception of time. So in order to do justice to an explosion actually happening and having cause and effect effects in the world, you have to slow time right down and let let the clock tick in ten thousandths of a second, pretty much which is a real scale on which time goes by. It is arbitrary to think that a a second is is about the familiar amount of time. That's just like us as human beings being evolved to see a particular spectrum of of electromagnetic radiation and then calling it light and calling it colours. The kind of animals we are finds certain scales of time natural and ordinary and finds other things too small to see and other things too long to see. We don't perceive ten thousandths of a second. We don't see them very easily. And we're not around to perceive time going by by the million years either. But it is in the midst of our experience of time, this kind of cold, peculiar thing, which is more peculiar the more you look at it, that we manage to do all the warm stuff of living, working, loving, falling for people, making mistakes, picking ourselves back up and things. So the kind of the human sense of home and the human sense of, of familiarity and kind of human hopes and fears and stuff happen as if in a sort of in a cardboard box within a much vaster landscape. And every now and again, I think you ought to describe what's inside the cardboard box with reference just a bit to what's outside the cardboard box. Weird that that may seem as a proposition. I want to carry on talking about the time span, because as I said, we start off talking about millions of a second or yeah. whatever it is, you know, a very, 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 very small section of time. And then, as you've already explained, the the book is split into sections that are like 15 years apart. And that's an interesting time gap in itself, because it's, I mean, you've already given a sort of indication of what influenced that. But it's, it's also long enough that it sort of disrupts the narrative of the lives. Yeah. 
of the characters because we are just getting snapshots of where they are at those points and you know we read one section and then we come back and the characters you know they're in a different job and married to a different person for instance yeah and and so yeah so that that I think that that's like clearly a deliberate to break up what we would normally expect to be here's the entire life story of this of this character yeah and each time we visit but we basically get a day each for each of them at 15 year intervals which is you know I, i'm not against this book having some kind of sapy satisfactions and wanting to find out what happens next and what becomes of people but it's too long a gap for it to work like episodes in one story easily things have always changed 15 years is long enough to shift you not just on a bit in one phase of life but into the next phase of life which is why I picked it you jump from kind of childhood to early 20s to kind of early middle age to late middle age to being old and and every time you feel the gap again if I've if I've done it right you feel the discontinuity as well as as well as the continuity the effect I wanted was like being endlessly no, perhaps endlessly is the wrong word. I hope it feels not endless, but I hope it feels as if it goes by in a happy, you know, in a happy rush. But over and over again, being presented with sort of before and after pictures, things that make you notice just how much change has happened before you also notice that they're still the same people. Um, it was technically quite fiddly because I didn't want to spend every time I visited with them again explaining what had happened in between. And it could become very backward looking if I'd let it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Francis Spufford and we're talking about his latest novel, Light Perpetual. 
and Francis will spend the second half looking at each of the characters mm. in the book and a little bit about their lives and, and concerns and interests, etc. And so let's start with Alec. So tell us, first of all, who Alec is. Alec is the... I didn't realise when I was writing him that Alec, who is clever, is therefore but a smart Alec. That was an accident. <laughs> Alec is the cheeky kid in the primary school who can spell everything perfectly and whose mouth moves faster than is perhaps quite sensible for him. And we first see him kind of defying a headmaster trying to humiliate the class. And he becomes I mean he, he comes from a family of kind of labor aristocrats is the sort of social history way of describing what they are compositors in the newspaper business very highly skilled at the top of the kind of working class tree of skills like being a train driver and because his father and his grandfather were typesetters he's a typesetter too in later decades he'd have gone to university but but he didn't he goes off to be to be a typesetter gets married quite young, but goes on being a person with perhaps kind of a generous and protective heart, but slightly more fight in him and slightly more hair-triggered than is good for him. We catch up with him as a as a union man engaged in, in the kind of long and bitter dispute with the Times, not over Wapping, but the one before that in 1979. And then we catch up with him again, and suddenly his profession's vanished because computer typesetting abolished people like him altogether, grimly doing his um, open university degree and turning himself into a primary school teacher. And then in the end, he is the headmaster of the school whose headmaster he was defying 60 years earlier. Only it's a very different kind of school by then in a very different borough. He's a He's one of those people who's constantly convinced their life is a failure, even though everyone else looking on will notice what a lot got done. One of the sections, I think one of the early sections with Alec, there is a, a fantastic sequence that to me sort of echoed that very first setup chapter where you talk about, you know, the, the sequences of what's going on in a, in a warhead. And it's an extremely forensic description of a printing press that he's sitting and working. And, and it's, it's really marvellous. And I just wanted to, you to tell me something about the work you did into like, you know, researching those old print presses. Well, I've I've seen somebody working one. And the first thing that struck me was kind of and I, I make Alec love it because I, I think I think he does. It, it was a an extraordinary sort of brilliant, ingenious, but Edwardian solution to kind of mechanizing typesetting. It looks like the guts of a grand piano stood on end. And it's like a kind of combination between a kind of a harp and a vast steam powered manual typewriter and and I don't know what, and it's unbelievably loud. So part of what I knew I had to render was the kind of symphony of different rattles, hisses, clunks and, and, and other sounds that it made. And what a kind of weird organic and mechanical unity it made with its, with its operator. Because the person sitting in front of it, you know, it, it wasn't made easy like computer typesetting. There was a huge amount of kind of anticipatory skill in which you'd basically the human would hold what the machine was doing in their mind enough to anticipate it and to, to handle the line endings and things. And there'd be this grimy keyboard, not laid out like a typewriter keyboard, with the most common letters at each end and the rare ones in the middle capitals lowercase and this fascinating kind of spidering action of the fingers you, you can tell that I developed a kind of nerdy enthusiasm for this thing watching it go but I thought it was a 
I thought it was beautiful and, and kind of socially fascinating as well, that at a time when education was not very spread around, the kind of bourgeois production of, of high-minded words was not possible without a skilled a man always a skilled working class man in between a kind of an intermediary making the words flow and I was interested in what it was like to be that kind of betwixt and between person Um, and he's proud to be there and he's slightly regretful when he has to go off and be a teacher instead he mourns the loss of the kind of the honourable place providing the world's supply of words. Let's move on to Ben and and I'll ask you to tell us something about Ben, but, you know, specifically, I remember when we talked about Golden Hill and, and we talked about one of the characters. Obviously, this is a book that's set before there was such a diagnosis, but one of the characters is clearly autistic in Golden Hill. And Ben, certainly towards the beginning of the book, is suffering very badly from schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, so tell us something about who Ben well, is and then something about writing about schizophrenia. Well, if it is schizophrenia, because schizophrenia mm. is one of those diagnoses where when you look at it closely, it turns out to be more like a kind of a bundle of related conditions rather than... I like autism. Well, exactly. The more you look, the more the, the, the more it splits into multiple syndromes. Ben is in some ways like the kind of the holy fool of the book. He was always very small. He was a small child and he's an extremely small adult, still wearing kind of large child-sized trousers all his life. And he is victimised by his own thoughts. He lives for a horribly large amount of the early part of his life, convinced of his own monstrousness because of these intrusive thoughts, which have to be endlessly, laboriously, wearyingly argued with. And he, he, he had a... He had a sort of solution early on when he got himself checked into a mental hospital and dosed with enough Thorazine, basically, to close his mind down so he could just gaze at things comfortably. But they won't let him stay there because he's basically, he's physically fine. So um, he's a bus conductor and we see him coping with basically a kind of helping of hell inside his head while managing to do a shift on an old Routemaster bus with an open back platform, which goes endlessly backwards and forwards between Queen's Park and the imaginary borough of Bexford down in the southeast. I wanted to do some justice to the way that in a city, your fellow citizens, the people around you have astonishingly different things behind their eyes. And some of them are engaged in the most appalling bits of silent heroism, simply coping with their own company. Um, I also wanted to suggest that it's because Ben sees so intensely that he's so he's so vulnerable to his own thoughts and so easy for his own thoughts to victimise him. So that there is a kind of there is an upside to being Ben as well, which comes into view later on in the in the book. Um, the sun finally comes out for him. I mean, from a mixture of a mixture of the kind of the love of a good woman and not being a bus conductor anymore, and the invention of the invention of, of a new generation of antipsychotic drugs. And also possibly, because he can't tell which is the thing that did the job, getting exorcised in a in a Pentecostal church. Um, because from his point of view, it might as well be an evil spirit. And I'm not trying to condescend to people's conviction that they are kind of haunted by evil spirits either. It seems to me to be a description which corresponds to how intensely awful it is being some people. But he ends up being as intensely happy as he has been intensely miserable to begin with and cooks things. <laughs> so next, um, Joe and Val are sisters. And we'll talk about Joe first. And she 
throughout the book sort of ekes out a living just on the very, very outskirts of the of the music industry. And I want to talk a little bit about Joe, but also I guess music is not yeah. just in Joe's story, but is 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 threaded throughout this book. And music is obviously a thing that works as a good a good sort of signifier of time passing. Yeah. But also you you do you sort of write about it so well and so lovingly. And I just wanted to talk about the use of music in the book as well. Um, well, but tell us something about who Joe is, first of all. Right. Joe and Val are twins growing up in a household with with no blokes in it because their father didn't come back from the Second World War and there was their auntie and their mother. Uh, Joe has synesthesia. She can sounds have colours for her. And to begin with, she just assumes that's what the world is like for everybody, which is all the people I've talked to who have had synesthesia always start off assuming that everyone knows that the number three is yellow and so on. Um, and it comes as a bit of a shock when it's not true for everyone. She sings and she sings beautifully, but her life doesn't start very quickly because she is the dutiful sister who gets stuck with looking after their dying mother. So for all too long in the late 50s and early 60s, she spends her time listening to everything she can get her hands on from the record library and picking it out for an audience of nobody on a guitar and playing the upright piano in their front room for an audience of nobody. And her life doesn't begin until her mother has died, which leaves her time then to go on have a career as yeah as a backing singer really somebody who who never quite makes it into the kind of into the front row but is in the music business and she strikes it lucky or possibly unlucky in falling in with somebody who does become a bona fide rock star a kind of slightly rod stewart like figure She's his girlfriend and his musical collaborator and for a while looks like it's her band as well as his band. But things go wrong between them and she ends up in a kind of glamorous but dreary kind of half-life of her near fame, still being sort of attached to this guy, still singing on his records, still having the experience I found fascinating learning about backing singers of being kind of so near to stardom and so intimately involved in actually producing the sound but still on the outside of on the outside of fame and and after a bit she gives up and comes back to London and turns herself into a local authority music teacher which she's very good at she wrote songs too which never got anywhere so although her life is kind of and you know she has a child and her life is is extremely fulfilled in some ways but still haunted by the sense of other lives that nearly had but not quite had she's quite spiky she's i mean having having had to be extremely good for the first part of her life she has been not taking any bullshit for all of the remaining decades but your question about music i mean yeah absolutely music is handy for any novelist who wants to kind of steer us recognizably through the decades providing bits of soundtrack to go ah it's the 1970s but it's more than that and it had to be in there for several reasons because Music is the genuinely popular art. It's the way in which human making and human meaning making touches almost everyone. And it's something where the making of it and the doing of it were absolutely open to kind of gifted working class kids in South London in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and onwards. You know, the Rolling Stones come from South London too, and endless other bands since. I think drum and bass comes from South London, although North Londoners will probably be right again to complain when I say this. So I wanted her to be kind of the person who's doing the culture of these decades, not just receiving it and as a soundtrack, but actually being deeply involved in kind of making 
the sound we live by. And music also is very strongly related to human perception of time. It only makes sense because we perceive time at particular speeds. And it is, for most of us, the way in which we most consciously and self-consciously sort of apprehend time passing. Three minutes of a song kind of intricately and deliberately scored with rhythm doing something a bit like a heartbeat in there and then melody in there doing something like the meaning we weave through the kind of compulsory rhythms of being a biological creature you know it's in there in a song and I wanted my heroes to be kind of lifetime heroes and middle-aged heroes and this year heroes and day-long heroes but also three-minute heroes I realize that's not what that means but I wanted the scale of music to be one of the things that provides a kind of tent peg into our understanding of time Three Minute Hero being a song that gets us into the uh, into the next section quite well. Yeah, I'm it does, yeah. That wasn't <laughs> our fault. That was an accident. Yeah, Val. So, so Joe's twin sister, who is the one you know out having a good time while Joe's at home doing all the hard work, both at the beginning and at the end of the book. Val originally on a, a sort of bank holiday weekend away with on a scooter with with some mods falls in with this terrible man Mike, and we sort of gradually see over her the story his progression from mods to skinhead to eventually British movement stroke national front. Just as an aside, I've written down here on my notes, Mike, Nicky Crane, question mark. Uh, no, Nicky Crane, Nicky Crane, no question mark. Nicky Crane, real person. Um, he's there haunting my sense of who Mike was as a character, though I wasn't doing Nicky Crane, but Mike definitely exists in relation to Nicky Crane. And one of the, the consequences of me once having been a non-fiction writer is that I like the sense of some kind of documentary connection to real history. And Nicky Crane, for people who don't know, was, was an extraordinarily complicated, very violent, extremely well-dressed fascist skinhead who moonlighted as a bouncer in gay clubs because he was himself gay and he had two radically different lives. But Mike has not it's going to sound very weird here. Mike is not as well worked out as Nicky Crane. Mike is not on as good terms with his own sexuality as Nicky Crane. Otherwise, he wouldn't be married to Val, who thought that she was seeing this gorgeous man. And she has a susceptibility to, to gorgeous men, which leads her in a completely undeserved way, but just as kind of one of the malignant accidents of life into this terrible, complicit situation as the kind of resented but never released kind of den mother of this bunch of skinheads in the, in the late 1970s from which she is only released when Mike, who she always tries to manage in small ways, but not ever successfully murders somebody in front of her for which she ends up doing some time as a as an accessory it's a it's a racist murder and a horrible thing um it's the kind of nadir of the book along with with ben's bus ride of hell which also evolves as it happens the same characters it does it does because i i was in crossover London in 1979 i can remember how bloody terrifying it was when skinheads got on the top deck and the way that sensible people if they were young enough to be objects of aggro kind of moved away <laughs> ben of course is too busy with the voices in his head to move away nearly fast enough but yeah val so but Val gets her second chance as well. And the, the second half of the book, and I suppose this is partly where, where my Christianity is, is showing, Val refuses the only invitation she ever gets to go to church because it's not, not that kind of book. He said, it's not that kind of book. But 
she finds something redemptive to do and slowly and painfully works her way back into a set of kind of little good actions that, as she says, kind of bring the light on a little bit and ends up sharing the parenting of Joe's son because Joe's partner is a bit mentally rackety as well. And, you know, she's all right. She is, she's somebody back from the brink of horrors who finds a way to a good life as well. And she finds her way to a kind of quite sort of battered wisdom as well at the end. It was no fun being Val writing her, but I was, I was quite proud of her. I know fictional person. Don't I'm not. I have not forgotten the <laughs> fictional people, Neil. Honestly. Well, it, it leaves us then with the, the final character, Vern, Paul Vern, the character who is um, less appealing than an accomplice in a racist murder, shall we say? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, all right, Vern. Um, Vern was the fat boy at school, and Vern is Vern was the bully at school, and Vern has Vern has a secret compartment in his head in which he is helplessly responsive to well yeah music but specifically opera Vern is a south london wide boy and con artist basically he'd call himself a property developer but most of his schemes have something extremely dodgy about them who has been creeping into the back of the eno and the royal opera house his entire life being helplessly moved in a way he almost resents but can't look away from by opera but he spends the rest of his time basically resisting the messages that opera is trying to is trying to send him. He is unrepentantly gross, but he's also sad. He doesn't sort of get to love very much or, or get to be loved either. And I hope there is a kind of gusto to his unrepentant, his unrepentant badness, which is a bit exhilarating to read about. Yeah, I'm I'm playing another kind of game with complicity there in the reader, I suppose, but I want I want you to kind of cheer him on slightly as as he successfully cons a footballer or awards himself a bigger, grander, more unbelievably opulently over the top gross-out meal at Glindbourne than any of the the posh people around him. I particularly loved um, how his how his business card kept changing to the sort of you know something from some posh West London mansion block associates to to the oh next yeah. one. That was just every, great. Every, great every business Vern face <laughs> is called something like Fanshawe or Chumley because um because it, it's clinging on by its fingernails to middle class respectability. And in the end, he does become a millionaire, though he loses it all thanks to the property crash in two thousand and eight. But it's he's he too is part of the story of London, um, and he's what what he finally makes his money out of is gentrification, which is kind of sad in a way because what he really likes is skyscrapers, and what he would really like to do is to be the kind of heroic glass tower property developer who who genuinely remakes the world, and all of his efforts in that direction you know, fraudulent though they are, also don't work. So what he's actually stuck with is doing up Georgian houses for middle-class incomers from which he makes a packet. And I want through him to to get a sense, cynical and a bit manky, but still kind of sensitive like litmus paper to the, the kind of changing physical city. I want the sounds of the city coming in through the music and the, the kind of the physical walls and stones of the city coming in and the technologies of the city and the kind of the changing kind of human inhabitants of the city all flowing along next to each other as oblivious as people are to each other when they're when they're sharing a rush hour tube but still very very close. To finish it off, can I get you to, to read us a bit? 
Yes. Um, can I put in a footnote here before I read it? Please. On the religion point, it's quite important here that, that yes, I am. I am a believer and a Christian, and it goes into the way I understand how human beings behave. There are some sort of fundamental patterns in the way I sort of understand human experience here, but it's not the kind of book which is designed to lead you towards virtue or to propagandise or, or proselytise. Honest. Contains, it contains a whole load of stuff. Um, I'll read you a bit. Okay, this is Joe, the musician at 70 or thereabouts, visiting her husband, Claude, who is having one of his flaky times and is in a kind of halfway house for mental patients and experiencing one of those moments of, of regret about the life she didn't have if she hadn't come home to be a music teacher. She carries her mug and his and two teaspoons through into the narrow kitchen that opens off the patient lounge. The instant coffee is in a catering-sized tub. The tea bags are in a Tupperware box. None of the mugs match. The biscuit tin has a sticker on top that says, Neil's biscuits, hands off! She washes up. She dries up with a tea towel bearing a picture of Carnarvon Castle. There's a window to the right of the sink that looks back into the lounge and through it she can see Claude framed in his chair like a badly lit still life. His narrow, quivering head, his big, incurious eyes, the nurse still standing over him. Probably the nurse is still there because he has not yet taken his pills. Probably he has not yet taken the pills because he wants to go on talking. Probably he is telling the nurse about Henry Kissinger. Yes, the nurse taps the pill pot arrested in Claude's hand, and Claude reluctantly lifts it to his mouth. And all of a sudden, with the last mug still in her hand, a message comes through loud and clear from her psyche. This is an accident. There is no need for her life to have worked out like this at all. So many other possibilities. She could have stayed in LA. She could have had a solo career. She could have stayed in the band with Ricky if he'd been slightly braver. She could have married Ricky and then, let's not kid ourselves, been divorced by Ricky and got that ludicrous white wedding cake of a house in Malibu in the settlement and be living there now, eating egg white omelettes and all purple meals for the antioxidants, you know, showing off her collection of Fender guitars to rock biographers. Chance that she came back to London. Chance that she met Claude. Chance that she taught for 20 years at Bexford Hill. How can this be her life? How can that be her love if it rests on such accidents? Surely her real life is still waiting to happen. Surely she is still in the wings at the Pelican Club waiting to go on, or running across the common with Val and her tamashanta kicking at leaves. Surely the real thing has yet to come along. Then, just as suddenly, just as clear, she thinks, so what? Nobody chooses who they love. Possessing something, being somebody, loving anyone, it rules the rest out. And so it's quieter than being young and looking forward and expecting it all. That's all. The world calms down when your choice is made. That's all. She puts away the last mug in the melamine cupboard and goes to say goodbye to Claude. See you on Monday, she says. See you on Monday, he echoes and watches her as she goes, puzzled as if she knew something enormous that he does not. But later, on the bus back from Woolwich to Bexford, it returns, milder this time, and more melancholic, a grief. On the top of the 54, 
up at the front where she's always liked to sit on London buses to get that stilt walker's sway, that giraffe rider's ungainly perch above the street. She supposes that at some point when her hips go, she won't be able to make it up the stairs. For now, she can, though. And she sits, surrounded by changing crowds of teenagers, out for the start of Saturday night. White girls whose thongs show above the back of their low-rise jeans. God, what a stupid fashion. Black boys with heads shaved into cryptic sigils, getting on and off in obedience to the invisible frontiers of the postcode wars. Kids young enough now to be easily the children of the ones she taught when she first returned. And to all of them, her presence is an effective blank. She has no part in their very important games, and they treat her as if she were invisible. They chat, catcall, shout, across and around the old woman with the white bob, the melanoma scar, the lips pressed together. Blotted lights of traffic and crossing signals float across the curved glass beside her, neon leaves on black water. Ahead, there is still a faint smear of light in the western sky, sunset remnants fading like a dim lamp behind stained glass. Brake lights stitch the way across Blackheath. Down the hill, on the far side, and the dim panes of colour tip up and disappear behind the tree branches on the slope. By the time the 54 levels out at the bottom, the sky to the west and the east and the south and the north is the plain black static of the London night, fuzzed with sodium. Onward to Lewisham, and then the grind up the long gradual slope to Bexford. Underneath Saturday night, underneath the fried chicken shops and the billboards and the railway arches, the geology of the city persists on its own timetable, scarcely scratched by the crackle glaze of brick and tarmac spread over the top. Bexford, Lewisham, Woolwich. Permanent sounding names for gravel beds left behind by the river's random swinging this way and that across a basin of clay between hills for millions of years during which there were no names, no city, no humans. Here there was ice, pine forest, rainforest, tundra, ice again, over and over and only in the very last iteration of the cycle, the faint grey thread of smoke rising from the first campfire, the first pinpoint of red in the London night. The city, the great city, is shallow lithography on the clay. The city is a mayfly veil. So I've been talking to Francis Spufford. We've been talking about his latest novel, Light Perpetual, which is out now from Faber. Francis, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you for having me, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.